Hey yo, what is going down, everybody? It's your boy Trent McClellan with another episode of the Generators Podcast, and <laughs> this is a big one. Okay, okay. So brace yourself for this one. This one, we're talking icon this week. All right. If you're Canadian, I, I mean, I don't know if there's a more famous person in Canada. And my guest this week, but that's the quality of guests we're bringing to you here on the Generators Podcast, on the Comedy Here Often Podcast Network. All right, we'll get into that. First, how are you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know. A lot of people feel that way. You know, same, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd love to. That's a great idea. Let's set it up. See what that was? That was you and me having a conversation. Remember those? Face-to-face, gathering with people, conversations. Remember those? They're back. Okay? For most of the country, they're back. You can actually get together with a certain amount of people again. My God. What are we, what are we going to talk about? We'll do the same things we've always done, I guess. You know, talk about the weather. Yeah, it was 23 on Saturday. Can you believe that? Oh, oh man. Have you seen the price of flights? Man, oh, man. You know, we'll go back to those basic conversations, but I'll be honest with you. I missed them. Missed having that connection with my uh, fellow human. And I'm glad they're back. And I'm glad the world is, is opening back up and we're getting to some, uh, some level of connection again. I think we all need it. You know, we need it. And uh, I hope you're well out there, wherever you are. I hope things are turning around for you. We're turning this shit around. All right. Enough having excuses why your dreams aren't where you want them to be and why you put on some pounds and why you're in a job you can't stand. It's like, all right, that's it. No more excuses for any of that stuff. Now it's on you. You had 15, 16 months of, you know what? The world's messed up, COVID, da-da-da, all that. Good. Now it's turning around. So now it's just you and the mirror. That's it. Okay? Here we go. Life coaching with Trent McClellan. Dear God, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad place in life if I'm your life coach, because I'm just figuring shit out over here myself. So, you know, take what you will. Anyway, I'll tell you one example of the world opening back up is that your boy here has some stand-up comedy dates. Well, two, but they're in the same town. But that's fine. I'll take that. Okay? I will take that. Um. I didn't know if things are going to be going down, if things are going to be open again, what's happening, what's going down. Uh, so I didn't know when I would be able to do stand up again. And uh, it turns out it won't be that long. I'm going to be in St. John, New Brunswick. Great little city. Love it. Quaint. People super friendly. Really, really pretty place. If you've never been, check it out. I'm going to be in St. John, New Brunswick, July 16th and 17th at Punchlines. And uh, I am excited. Like, I'm genuinely fired up to be getting back on stage and uh, 
trying some material on, on those fine folks. I am so excited. And, uh, when something goes away, you just appreciate it more. And that's a lesson I, I wish we all didn't have to learn as often as we do, but it's, it holds true. Take something away that you, you know, you appreciate it, but maybe didn't appreciate it enough. Take it away for an extended period of time and you will love it all the more. And so I'm, I'm fired up to get back on stage and take a bunch of new ideas. I got my yellow flip chart paper on the wall with a bunch of new stand-up premises and ideas that I'm going to take to the people, you know, because that's what I do. I take my ideas to the people so that people can laugh at them. That's it. That's the business I'm in. So um, I'm excited about that. And thanks to folks who are getting tickets and, and coming out to the show and uh, showing love. I appreciate that uh, a great deal. I'm very, very excited. Um, all right. Let's set this one up, this episode. I mean, I said it earlier and, and I stand by it. I don't know if there's a more famous Canadian than my guest this week. I mean, when you think about the longevity that that guy has had, how long he's been in our lives uh, on television, just in media in general. I personally grew up watching this, this guy on TV. He made science interesting and fun. And we get into that in this conversation. Um, my guest, of course, is Dr. David Suzuki. And I, uh, I had the privilege of hosting his um, 85th birthday party on Zoom a few months ago. And uh, they reached out and said, hey, we're, we're looking to have a little thing for David's 85th. Would you mind just kind of hosting it, you know, and just kind of step in and, and uh, you know, set up some of the, the, the people who are going to be talking and wishing David, you know, giving David birthday wishes and stuff. And I was like, my God, yeah, that'd be fun to do just to to uh, to, to spend some time and, and, and host that event. So that was fun. And one of the things I realized about David Suzuki, I'd met him once or twice before doing segments for 22 minutes. But one of the things I realized when I, when I met him is that when you meet somebody who you've only ever seen on television for the most part, you don't really know if the persona you're seeing on, on camera is the real person. You have no way of knowing. You're like, is this just something they're turning on, you know, for the TV cameras? Is this just, um, you know, kind of a persona that is, you know, beneficial to them in a way professionally? And so now they do that. But what I found with, with David is that that's really him. He genuinely cares that much about the choices we're making as human beings and what we're doing to the planet. And I think for some people, it seems larger than life. You're like, man, no way someone cares that much about shit. Really? You live your life like that? But he does. He genuinely walks throughout the world. Um, I think still curious, still full of wonder, still figuring out ways that we can be better. And, uh, and it's, it's a real deal from what I've experienced with him, you know, on and off camera. Like, that's just who he is. That's what his passion is. 85 years old, still as fired up as ever about all these things. And I think this conversation, you will get to know a little bit more about him on a personal level and kind of what he values, which I want. I always want these podcasts to do. You can talk about people's 
professional accomplishments and what they've done and achieved. And I feel like all that's kind of well known with him. You know, that's a Wikipedia thing away, but I wanted to kind of get to know him a little bit more and what his thoughts were on certain topics that are going on in the world right now. And uh, I think he's, he's pretty open in this conversation. I really, really appreciated his, his insight. And uh, I think, yeah, I think this is a good one for you. So this is it. This is me bringing you, bringing you another great guest. Sit back and enjoy Dr. David Suzuki. First of all, how are you doing, sir? I have not seen you since the <laughs> glorious party that was your 85th birthday party. How oh, are you doing? That was a fun party, and thank you very much for holding it all together. I realized after the fact that if you hadn't been there, it would have just been these disparate things going on. So anyway, thank you so much for uh, for being part of it. It was fun. No problem. I, I really enjoyed it. I think it was probably the uh, uh, a very intimidating situation in the sense of a comedian being in the company of such intelligent people. You feel... <laughs> Like I did graduate from university, David, but I wasn't head of my class, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I thought the funniest part of the exchange was when you were making fun of the nature of things. And I was trying to remember back that it was Ovid or some ancient Greek guy that wrote uh, wrote the first book titled The Nature of Things. That's where we got the title. We were going totally past each other and you're going, I don't understand a word you said. <laughs> That's the story of my life, David. The story of my life is attempting something people not understanding and me being left in the woods. That's basically how it happens. Um, so, but, you know, when you came on, I was looking with, through my binoculars. I think I should let you know uh, where I am. I don't know if you can see that. This is what I'm looking at. Wow. So this is where I've spent most of the lockdown in, in my cabin up here. What a beautiful time to have one. I would imagine cabin sales went up drastically in the last 16 months. Would you think? Well, I gather a lot of rich people kind of took off for their country estates and spent the time there. But, uh, yeah, I, I would think, uh, well, real estate would be skyrocketing now out in places like this. Yeah, I would imagine. I would definitely imagine. Um, the interesting thing I thought about the birthday party was I, you know, we'd met briefly before just with 22 minutes doing a sit down piece and, uh, and, and it was it was great to kind of meet you in that sense. But when I after the birthday party celebration that I hosted, I said to somebody afterwards, I go, the amazing thing about David Suzuki is that he's 85 years old and the fire is still there. The fire for everything you're doing is still there. Like, it's not an act. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I can speak to the fact that, like, off camera, you're like, no, I still believe in all this shit. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I was just, I got to say, I was really, really blown away by just the, the, the fire and the passion that was still there. 
Well, I, I really think that this is the most important part of my life. Uh, you know, my testosterone levels are down, so I only think about sex every um, 40 <laughs> minutes now instead of every two minutes. So I, I told my wife, you know, I'm getting smarter and smarter now that I'm uh, the testosterone levels are down. But at this stage, it's not only getting smarter, but I've lived a, an entire lifetime. Damn it, I've had a lot of experiences. And those experience, you know, the mistakes I've made, the, the, the failures, the successes, I've learned a hell of a lot. And this is, you know, I keep telling old people, get off your ass. This is a time to sift through your life. What the hell have you learned in that lifetime? Because if we can't pass those lessons on, what a waste it is. Yeah. And, you know, as the COVID the pandemic hit and you it, for me, what was horrifying was not so much that elders were the ones who were dying. I mean, it was the elders that were dying like flies. Most of the elders in Canada who died were in long term home cares. You know, only 11 percent of elders in Canada live in, in uh, some kind of home care situation. Most of them are living by themselves or with family. But those people that were in these long-term care homes were dying like flies. They died alone, uh, uncared for. Uh, it was, that to me was horrific because here the, these elders, they should have been plugged in and, um, they should have had a role in, in life, not just kind of put away so we forget them in some long-term care home. Anyway, yeah, no. that, that I found really horrifying. It's been a real wake-up call, obviously, to a lot of people in terms of just <clears throat> how we're living our lives in general. Like I, I've spoken on the podcast a number of times about when this hit 16 months ago, because we were forced to stop and slow down, you have no choice but to question every single thing in your life from your lifestyle to what you're doing career wise to relationships. Like, I think if people haven't taken advantage of this time to do that, our, our relationship to the environment on top of that, if people haven't taken that this time to do that, I think it's it's all been for naught and it's been a waste. Yeah. If you know what I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, why I didn't I haven't flown now for almost two years. And I love it. It's just fantastic. And I'm, what the hell are we rushing around, rushing around? You know, I think, I think of all the, the, and this is why I love Zoom. I know people are Zoomed out, but I love the Zoom. You and I, look, we didn't have to fly somewhere to get together. We're, you know, we're having this conversation and it's wonderful. Why do we have to get our asses from one place to another when, you know, and, and why are we in such a hurry? People are, you know, I'm saying we've got to uh, stop uh, flying jets. They're contributing a huge amount of uh, uh, greenhouse gases. And people say, well, well, how are we going to get from place to place? And I say, well, why are we in such a hurry? What about dirigibles? Do you know what a dirigible is? I you know, uh, lighter I, than air. I love cookies, and I, I've heard of these dirigibles with and, you know it was the Hindenburg that they, they they were full of hydrogen. The Hindenburg blew up, and and that was the end of dirigibles. But these things are huge. You can fill them with helium, which won't burn. 
They can lift enormous weights. You can have a gym in it. You can have a ballroom. You can have restaurants like they're huge. And um, you would get from Vancouver to, to Toronto in three nights. But you'd be going at about 120, 130 miles an hour, like drifting through the air and going and seeing your country from up top. I think a wonderful way. Why the hell do I have to get to Toronto in, in three hours? Yeah, yeah. I could take three days and have a wonderful time doing it. Anyway, I think we're we're rushing around too much. And I can tell you the first six months of my stay here on on my island it just happened that um my youngest daughter and her three toddlers and husband were here we were starting to kick off spring break and on march 13th 2020 the lockdown came i spent six months with sarika chris and their three children and i can tell you trent it was the happiest six months of my life why I uh, every day I had to, I was on call. I, I took the morning shift up at six kids come in like clockwork at quarter to seven, always happy, hungry, just ready for action. And I, once I got them cleaned up, you know, toothbrush dressed, fed and feeding was the big thing. God damn it. Every morning I'd wake up. What am I going to feed them this morning? And uh, I think of all the housewives that, that, that worry every day about feeding the family. I'd never realized what a big thing that is anyway. And out we would go rain or shine. And, you know, Trent, at my age, I get really pretty depressed about the state of the planet. You know, I've seen so much of it disappear. But my grandchildren, they don't know what's missing. Every day when we go out, we would find snakes and frogs and salamanders. We got an alligator lizard. That was like, oh, my God, the greatest discovery of all. And we've got a beautiful tide pool here. And we get horseshoe crabs and sand dollars and and moon snails and prawns. and the And through their eyes, it is still a wonderful world. And that gave me such joy. I rediscovered the world through their eyes. And it just made me all the more determined to try to save some of it for when they grow up. Anyway, I'm sorry. This is your this is your <laughs> uh, meeting. I'm way off script here. <laughs> no, it's great. I because I, I it's funny because that's a side of you that I don't know a lot of people know. Like people have seen you on television for decades. They they have watched you on the nature of things. They have seen you speak publicly. But you know, I'm sure a lot of people just don't know you as David Suzuki, the person. And so I don't know how many of them get an insight into these are the things, too, that fire you up. It's family. It's your grandchildren. It's 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 all those human pieces. It's not just about the environment and, you know, uh, what are we doing with planes? And I think yeah. that's what I want this, this talk to be about a little bit. You know, I want people to kind of get a better sense of who you are because you've become this, you know, Canadian icon and, and this super famous person. But I know you do that reluctantly. Like that was never the plan, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm often asked by people like you, what, what are you most proud of? And most interviewers are very surprised when I tell them my greatest pride, what I, I feel proud about is that when I fell in love with my wife, 
Now, that's 50 years ago. I also fell in love with their mom and dad. They were pretty amazing people. And so I asked them, I said, look, when you retire, uh, why don't you move in with us? I, we, I, we have a small apartment upstairs. You could move in with us. Now, her, her brother said, look, I love my mom and dad, but they drive me nuts. He said, I think you're crazy to move them in. <laughs> but they did. And it was one of the best things I ever did. Um, for one thing, both of our daughters had grandma and gram grandpa upstairs their whole lives. And, you know, when you're with your kids, there are times when you get totally fed up with each other, you know, and vice versa. They they get pissed off at you because you've done so. They always had grandma and granddad. They'd run upstairs and all they got was just love. And, you know, so it was a great uh, pressure cooker that they could get the pressure off by running upstairs. And I know that Tara, you know, especially when the kids were young, could always run upstairs and say to her mother, so what do you do? You know, when the kids, they can't breathe and I'm worried and, and, it was just such a great way to live. Um, it, there were times when I used to get frustrated with her, her dad because he was, a, he was a teacher and he became a superintendent. He was a big wheel in education and he would come down and, you know, his world had shrunk to our household and he'd come down and start saying, David, you got to do this. It used to piss me off, but you know, that's living together. Right. And, uh, it, I am so proud that both of them, they lived with us and they both died at home surrounded by family. Now, I never imagined they'd live as long as they would. Jesus, they, <laughs> my father-in-law died at 94 and wow. his wife, my mother-in-law died at 97. Wow. Yeah. But, the, you know, I, I feel they always had a place that our children were a joy to them. Um, my, my father-in-law took care of the garden and, uh, he had a job to do, you know, um, we heard a lot and a lot of stories about them in the war. They got married during world war two and all, it was a wonderful relationship. And I think, you know, we've got to rediscover that kind of way. Uh, of living. I, it was interesting during the, the pandemic that Surrey, which is uh, a, t a city right next to Vancouver, has a very high Indo-Canadian uh, population. They were dying like mad. Why? Because in Indo-Canadian communities, you have three and four generations living together, yeah. you know, and, to you know, so we're all concerned about the, the death rate. But that was telling us something, you know, that there are people that are still living in that way. And and I think we've we've got to really uh, learn from that because, you know, it's like me being here in the lockdown. I had a purpose in life. I was grandpa and I had a job to do and it filled me with joy. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope as we come out of this pandemic, we're, we're going to rethink the whole way that we're, we're living together. I, I think it's a great point because what I've realized in talking to people who have recently retired, people are fed this narrative of we must work our whole lives, eventually get a pension. We don't have to like what we do. We just are supposed to put our head down and, you know, pull the rope for um, for whatever. You retire, you get your pension, but not enough people have thought about 
what purpose will you have once you retire? Like, what yeah. do you do then? And so if you don't golf, uh, you're like, well, God, I don't, I don't have any social connection anymore. I don't. And I think it's, it's a lie fed to a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people go through it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, uh, well, you know, we're living in, in a way where we're, when my uh, two daughters were growing up, virtually none of their classmates had their grandparents even in the same city. Yeah. You know, let alone nearby. And so the schism between generations is really made worse by the fact that we're so mobile now. And, you know, people find jobs in Edmonton or or in Montreal and, and generations kind of are moving apart. We're we're not committed to to place. One of the things people are shocked at is we've lived in the same house now for 45 years. Wow. And. You know, I well that I can launch into a whole nother thing, but um, the this is my home. It's not a piece of real estate. It's my home, and Kitsilano is my community. That's where I hang out. You know, and uh, th that's not the I went in the late nineteen nineties when Hong Kong was going to revert to China. Uh, people were a lot of people were trying to get out of uh, uh, Hong Kong. And I got a letter from a real estate agent. I wasn't looking to sell or anything. And it said offshore money is pouring into Vancouver. Now is the time for you to sell your house and buy up. I'd never heard the concept of buying up. And I learned then that you, you have a starter home, which is what you can afford a small one. And then as time goes by, you sell that and get a bigger one and a bigger one. Uh, and if you're super rich, you get a huge house like Drake, you know, like that's the goal. Like <laughs> this is, this is crazy, but you know, it's just, I, I so I got really pissed off that this guy had come to me and was trying to get me to sell my house. So I said, okay, if I'm going to sell my house, what am I going to put down that, that list all of the things that really make it, uh, make it expensive as far as I'm concerned. So the first thing I, I did was I put down the fact that we moved uh, Tara's mom and dad in with us. And he takes care of the garden. And uh, he knew I loved, uh, I love raspberries and asparagus. And he planted a raspberry patch and an asparagus patch. At one point, I had been in the States on a tour for a month. And I came home. I was really tired. I come to the door. There's my father-in-law. And he has a brown bag. He said, David, this is the first asparagus that came off this season. And it's yours. And I saved it for you. Wow. And I put that down on my list, my asparagus and raspberry patch, you know, that my, my father-in-law raised. My dad was a um, cabinet maker. And when Tar and I were first married, he built a kitchen cabinet for our apartment. When we bought the house, I ripped that cabinet off the wall and put it in my kitchen in the house. It looks like hell. It doesn't belong. But every time I use that, open that cupboard, I think of my dad. Yeah. And I put that down, you know, when my mother died, I put her ashes on a clematis plant in our yard. And every year when that clematis plant blooms, I, I feel that my mother is there. And I put that down. I built a, a tree house for my kids in a, in a, the dogwood tree. And, and uh, they've had countless hours playing in that 
treehouse. And I put, and as I listed all of the things that made my house my home, I realized they are things that are priceless. But on the market, they are worthless. Because on the market, we measure everything in terms of money. But that's not the important thing. (laughs) All those things, you know, they have a connection to me, a spiritual connection. And I don't know, this this whole, we've, we've turned everything into how much does it cost, you know? And yeah, it, uh, That's the value. I, I, I find that we don't settle in a place, send, send our roots down in place and establish the community of people around us who are also established in place. And of course, right away, you come to indigenous people. You know, I talk to indigenous guys I, I meet in Vancouver and uh, within a minute, they're telling you where they're from. You know, mm-hmm. I'm from King Colas or uh, I'm from uh, Bella Bella because that's where their roots are. They're temporarily in Vancouver, but their place is, you know, uh, where their ancestors have been for thousands of years. We're a country of immigrants. And we don't have those kinds of roots. And I really think we have to start in the place that we decide this is going to be my home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a great, great point. I realize as well, I'm from Newfoundland originally. And when I moved out west, it was the same thing. People were like, well, yeah, you have this place now, but you can go to this other place and live in a bigger home with a bonus room. I'm like, what the hell is a bonus room? What do, you, what do you mean? You added a room onto the place that, that didn't have before? It's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Like people out east were just born and raised and died in the same home. It's like, we have enough bedrooms. We have a kitchen. We have a bathroom. I didn't yeah. get the whole eagerness to always up, to go up, to level up, to level up. And you keep chasing it, thinking it's going to make you happier. And it has nothing to do with happiness. And people yeah. just keep filling it up and filling it up. And, I, and I, I see exactly what you're talking about. You cannot replace that in a space the memories the emotional connection you have to to something that's not a that's not a dollar amount it's just not no. you know um and so i saw it a lot in my in my own life when i moved from newfoundland out west um i was interested to get into this with you david about that disconnection you feel is still there i'm assuming you feel still there between indigenous people in this country what we have done, what we've not done. You see what happened with the discovery at the uh, the residential schools in BC and, and, and in other areas of Canada. And it's, you know, Canadians, we like to kind of pat ourselves on the back that we're not Americans and uh, we're not like America. And, you yeah. know, we don't have these certain things, but we have our own ghosts and own skeletons in our closet. And, and what is the road back from that? Well, I mean, what is, what is the reckoning that's going to have to happen to change perceptions and to heal here. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that racism is racism. And whether it's the anti-LGBTQ community, whether it's the Muslims, whether it's right now there's a wave of anti-Asian prejudice expressing, they're all the same. They're just bigots that come out of the woodwork when they're given an excuse to reveal their ignorance. And what we have to do, I believe, uh seriously that canadians the bulk of canadians uh want a, a society in which we value uh, our di- diversity and so in terms of uh you know like the recent muslim uh, uh, murder and then of course the kamloops uh, revelation of the mass graves 
people have got to speak out, you know? So I, I've seen these videos, horrible videos of people attacking old Asian women. People around have got to jump out and say, we don't stand for this. Listen, you son of a bitch, you know, like we got to speak out. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, I, I see cases where people start bugging uh, someone in a bus. If if we don't come out and say, stop that, get the hell off this bus. You know, it's all of us around that are going to express this is not acceptable in the society that we live. Now, we're all too afraid, you know, oh, well, if I jump, this guy is bullying that uh, woman because she's wearing a scarf. God damn it. We've got to be able to stand up to bullies and there have to be more than just you there willing to do that. So that's one thing I think we all have to do is to show that we uh, who, who who abhor this kind of bigotry are in the majority. We got to show that. Of course, we will never deal with the, the reality that we that racism is built into the very structure of, of Canada from the moment of contact. The settlers, the colonizers that came here assumed that these were primitive people with nothing to contribute. They negotiated treaties in a language completely foreign to these people in a legal system that made no sense to them. It was an alien. And we got them to sign over. And we think that's a legitimate uh, uh, transaction. And then we just chop away at all the agreements that we did make. You know, if you look at like I, I look at the Squamish people here, their original treaty was huge parts or uh, of uh, B.C. But then as Vancouver began to grow, we chopped into their territory and said, oh, well, we need that part. We need to put a railroad through here or whatever. And so even though we did sign treaties and agreements, we didn't abide by them. And that's built in, you know, when an RCMP officer shoots an indigenous person, we say, oh, well, you know, we got to deal with that. That's a bad apple. It's not a bad apple. The whole bushel of apples is rotten because it's systemic. It's built into what we, the way we view indigenous people or uh, so we've got to deal with that. And I can't tell you how much of a change has already happened in the last 20 years. I mean, 20 years ago, if we were doing a show on alcohol, uh, we wouldn't think twice about getting a shot of an indigenous guy drunk on Skid Row and slap that in the film. Today, you would never do that. You know, yeah. like so many assumptions um, uh, are, are going by the board. It's, it's uh, this is an exciting time because for me, it's not just a question of uh, the social justice of uh, we've got to right the wrong. The reality is in confronting the uh, the environmental crisis, indigenous people have something we desperately need so that we have to recognize that culturally, linguistically, they have something to offer. And so we have to raise them up for that. It's a, a very exciting time. Now, you know, I have to have full disclosure here. I have two indigenous grandchildren, so I have a vested interest in what happens to uh, indigenous people. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It's you no, know, Trevor. 
It's been the history. <laughs> ah, sorry, Trent. What, I, I, thought, I thought you were joking, like you were trying to put me in my place, but you're like, no, no, no it's legitimate. That's right. Uh, I've, I've had it no, happen. The, the, the thing is, as a biologist, I think of our evolutionary history. And, you know, the amazing thing today is uh, scientists can now trace, track the movement of humans across. We didn't, weren't all born in the same place. Humans weren't everywhere. Uh, and if you trace the trail, the movement of humans across the planet, all of the trails lead back to Africa. 150,000 years ago. That's our birthplace. So I'm hoping the Ku Klux Klan is going to watch this uh, uh, exchange here and invite me to come and talk to them so I can tell them, we're all Africans for Christ's sake. What's your problem? <laughs> but the, we, were, we were born as a species on the great grasslands of Africa. But eventually, after about 50,000 years, we began to move. We don't know why. You know, our habitat was the grasslands of Africa. It might have been that there were enough clans that we began to fight. And so they were looking for new territory. I mean, they might have ran out of certain resources. I think it was teenagers saying, you know, we bred with Neanderthal people. And I can just see teenagers going, hey, there's some good looking Neanderthals over <laughs> on the other side of the mountain. You know? Let's go. Anyway, whatever the reasons, we began to move. Yeah. And when we moved into new territory, we were an invasive species. We didn't know how everything worked. You know, suddenly, oh, my God, there are those big birds and they don't have wings. They're easy to catch and they're yummy. You know, or these big, slow moving sloths, man. We were even though we were only had stone axes and spears, we were pretty deadly because we were smart. And so. Eventually, in new territory, we had we made mistakes. We killed off too many of those birds or whatever. We had to learn through the failures and the mistakes and successes of our ancestors how to live more in balance in the area. And that's the heart of indigenous knowledge is that we came into new territory. We screwed it up. And then we had to say, oh, we can't do that. And, you know, that's indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. But so we then and it's incredible, you know, that we spread on our legs. We walked and spread right around the world. So here were indigenous people thousands of years ago. There were people, North America, South America, Africa, everywhere. And uh, then along come these Europeans, great explorers, you know, oh. Wow. And they discover all these new places. And in every place, whether it's Africa, North America, South America, Australia, it's those goddamn people that are already there. We look, we want their trees. We want their gold. We want, you know, get the hell out of the way. And so what you see over and over again is you start slaughtering the indigenous people or you to move them on to, to some kind of reserves and say, now you behave like good uh, people like us because we had they had no respect for the knowledge base of the people living there, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that's been the case around around the world. And so we're seeing in Canada, we're now reaping the consequences of that. And it's amazing, despite everything that has been done to indigenous people here. 
they're still clinging to that sense of the they need the land you know the fight for the for the uh, pine forest in oka you know the mohawks are fighting for the they don't that land isn't critical part of their economy it's a small piece of they're fighting for that because they the land should not have condominiums and a golf course. And as Mohawks, it's our responsibility to care for that land. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's the the big battle going on everywhere. These, uh, These colonizers came for the resources. They didn't care about the land. They, you know, and we're still fighting it now. You're seeing it in British Columbia. There's a fight at Ferry Creek in, on Vancouver Island. We still want to cut down all of the big trees for the, for the money they bring because we don't give a shit about whether forests are forever. We just want to get what we, we want now. And that's the colonial mentality that has been spread everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, you see it everywhere. It's like, how can you convert something into cash in your pockets and the, the rest be damned? And that has been going on since the history of time, unfortunately. So it's there is definitely a reckoning to have indeed. I often wonder about this. Like you are so passionate about science from a very early age. And I thought to myself, you know, I hated it. Oh, my God. Someone put a periodic table in front of me. I'd rather throw up. Oh, my God, the cell. We're going to learn about the cell. Yay! Anyway, uh, I. but what I realized was this. My mind works in a way that I like to question things. Like, that's what comedians do. We look at the world. We look at it from a different perspective. And we ask, why? How is that? But scientists generally do the same things when you're in that world. But that wasn't part of the academic experience when I was a kid. It was just know these things. And I guess they were trying to formulate a basis for which you can go on to then do experiments. But I thought, my God, how much more fun would science have been when I was young if everything was a question? Everything was like, well, what if this? What if that? Instead, it was just know these things. Know the parts of the cell. You know, like I just saw it as, where's the fun in this? Where's the joy in it? And I wonder, has has academics changed in that regard in schools? Do you have any, have have you presented in a way? That is one of the most profound observations. You're not a comedian. You're a profound thinker. This is one of the, you know, this is a a critical point. You talk to any of the great scientists and say, you know, how did you get into science? It started because they they were just fascinated by, you know, Carl Sagan was just blown away by stars when he was a kid. E.O. Wilson at Harvard, he started off, he was fascinated by snakes when he was a kid, you know, and and you you talk to the, the, the great scientists, what got them involved was a kind of sense of wonder and amazement. The problem is science in if you know i studied an insect for my entire scientific career now you would be amazed if you look through your microscope at a at the fly that i studied you would be blown away because the eyes are brilliant red a vermilion red but then as you look closer you see the arrangement of the facets, these little light receptors, all in a very geometric pattern. And where 
each receptor comes together, a tiny bristle or hair is grown. Like I used to, I used to work at the lab late at night and the janitors would come in and I'd say, come on. They'd say this funny looking guy working at two in the morning. What the hell is he doing here? I said, come on, have a look. They were always blown away. Like, Oh my God. But when I write a scientific paper, if I were to say, you know, the, the, uh, the amazing color of the eye with the precision of the, the rows of fast that would, that paper would be rejected because you have to be objective. You don't show emotion. You know, Jane Goodall got hammered because when she did her, her big studies on chimpanzees, she gave them names. See that shit science. She named them after humans. You know, you're just anthropomorphizing this thing. The scientist is objective. And that's uh, that I think is that turns kids off because then we teach science as if, well, you do this and then you do this and then you get this answer. And there's none of the sense of, isn't it interesting? Like how does that virus get into us? And how does, how do you get resistant to the virus? Like what are these vaccines? How do they work? Like every kid, every person is going to be fascinated by that. But the way the science is presented is it's all very logical and we we do it. this, And that isn't the way science works at all. You get interested in, you know, you get interested in something and you make a discovery. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. And then some guy over there is studying something else and, and you're talking and you go, hey, you showed this. You sh- maybe it were you know, and that's the way it goes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. There's that sense of wonder, and it's stoked. But in the early academics, that's not there. The humanity, the human side, that wonder is sucked out of it, and yeah. therefore just becomes a series of numbers and long, long syllable words that you're like, is this? This is it. This is yeah. This is what science is. And I think if they would inject that in, you'd have people more interested and more intrigued and enthused by it i agree i agree and you know that uh, that is why david attenborough has been doing shows about nature for what 70 years or something like that and i've always said you know people always say god how could the nature of things have lasted on air so long i said People are fascinated by the world around. I could do a whole hour show on the sex life of an oyster. And I guarantee people would be blown away by it, you know? And <laughs> I mean, right. First thing is, you mean oysters have sex? They don't move. <laughs> you know, we, uh, we lose that in the way that science is presented. And you're absolutely right. I, I think it's too bad because it turns kids off. And um, they would be, yeah. Yeah, I think they'd be better served. And I think in general, it creates adults who no longer ask questions, right? Like we become people of, here's a set of knowledge I have. I don't want to know anything that's not in my box. If it's not in the box, I reject it. Where science to me is always a series of being open-minded about maybe, about, well, what if, or I don't know. It, It forces perspective. 
Whereas yeah. now I think we grow up in these linear ways of thinking either based on politics or religion or just how you're raised in your household. And we're not learning to consider other opinion or other perspective. Whereas to me, when I boil science down, that's all it is, is a series yeah. of just moving the camera all the way around to see, oh, from this side, it's this. But from this side, wow, completely different. Like it can teach such a bigger thing to me. Hey, you could become a good scientist, Trent. I think that uh, that's a that's a smart way of of saying it. You know, uh, the environmental crisis has been percolating for years and years, and scientists have been saying we're in trouble and all that. And gosh, when was it? Nineteen ninety five, maybe. Carl Sagan. You, you know who Carl Sagan is. Mm-hmm. And Stephen Gould, they're both dead now, but two big scientists called a meeting of scientists and spiritual leaders from religions all across the board in Moscow. And they they published this uh, this statement about how humanity was on a collision course with uh, with the creation, with what we received from our our creators and and there was this wonderful statement that said as as scientists many of us became scientists because of a sense of wonder and awe at the world around us and that sense of wonder and awe meant that we had reverence for it because that's you re, you take something that you you have awe before you acknowledge your own ignorance, but you acknowledge the wonder and that we've got a responsibility to protect it. It was a wonderful statement. I should carry it around with me. But it was where scientists were saying, if you don't have that kind of spiritual sense of uh, uh, amazement, we're going to continue to be destructive. And, mm-hmm. and science too often gets rid of that sense of wonder and awe. And um, and it becomes very destructive. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that bigger lesson, too, for me in life has been as I get older, is that this concept of what if I'm wrong? Like, what if the thing that I held on to and believe this is hard and fast, this is the way it always is. And as you get older, you start to consider what if I was wrong? What if there is another way to do that, to eat, to, to work out, to look at someone who doesn't agree with me? Can I look at that in a different way? It's like, there's a, but there's a letting go and a vulnerability to that of saying, wow, I'd have to let go of this thing that I, I was pretty adamant about for a long time. And a lot of people heard me, you know, and I think that takes vulnerability. And I don't know if we've learned how to do that to say, you know what? I know I said these things and you see it online now with people just, you know, hate filled stuff and ranting at people and I always think about that. Like, what if you're wrong? What what if that's not the case at all? That's a lot of humble pie to swallow. You are a very heavy thinker. Um, <laughs> no, because I, I think, you know, it's the hardest thing is is admitting that you are on the wrong path. You know, what I found is when people go through school, they get their education, they get a they get a job, they find a partner, they they buy a house, they have a kid. And then environmentalists come along and say, ah, 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 we can't do that anymore. You got to change your way. They they don't say, oh, you're absolutely right. I've got to change. They get pissed off. They get mad. And the reason is 
They've invested a huge amount of their life into getting to where they are. And it's the same thing with your beliefs about the world, you know, and if you're a Republican and you've been taught about the role of money in corporations and big governments bad and all that, you're not going to be convinced by someone else who says, hey, wait a minute now, you know, that there's a, what about the poor and all the, uh, so getting people to change their worldview, I mean, that is the toughest nut of all the crack. And I've, uh, you know, for me, I, I really think uh, the biggest hope is children. I mean, uh, you love your child. If your child comes home and says, Daddy, I'm worried about, you know, I'm learning in school about climate change and I'm worried. What are you doing? If mom and dad don't become warriors on your behalf, then we really don't deserve to exist as a species. I think that love of our children has got to become the driving force to make people change. And I get, you know, when I used to fly planes, I'd get on a plane and some guy in a suit would come up and say, Suzuki, you really pissed me off. I go, well, what did I do? And they say, my kid's coming home to me and telling me all the time that I got to stop doing this. And I think, yes, that's <laughs> the way you do it. You know, this yeah. is why Greta Thunberg has had such a huge impact. There's, there's no, you, you can't accuse her of having some vested interest or, you know, some other um, um, reason why she's pushing this. She's just saying the truth. I take, I've been taught to take science seriously and the scientists are telling us, I don't have a future. <laughs> yeah. You're screwing the planet. That's her message. Yeah. And man, has that had a huge impact. For sure. For sure. Well, I find it interesting in life in general, people will go to greater heights and make larger, um, larger efforts if it's not about them, like if they have a bigger cause, if it's for a loved one, if it's for for something else other than them. But when it's just for us, we'll find ways to shortcut it and go, ah, you know, well, who cares? But when you make it about somebody else, I think you do see a, a thread where people will will sacrifice and will dig in and do those things. And so maybe you're right. Maybe it is if you can think about your children or grandchildren or your children's 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 like can you now make those changes if it's not? For yeah, you, yeah. But no, but I, I don't agree with you that it's just looking and seeing. I mean, that can influence you, but it's when it has a direct impact on you. I mean, you look at people that that begin to campaign for prison reform or something, you know, Conrad Black spent time in prison. Guess what? He's concerned about prison reform. You know, <laughs> if you uh, uh, have a, a child who has a particular or some, you know, uh, uh, problem, uh, uh, autism or or whatever, uh, cystic fibrosis or anything, you become a champion for that because of its uh, direct impact on, on you. What I find really interesting today, though, Trent, is that if you look at the big commentators about society today that are pointing out the, the ills in a powerful, it's comedians. Mm, yeah, it's comedians. I think of John Stewart. I think of I was, uh, you know, Stephen Colbert. I think of Trevor Noah. I think of Jimmy Kimmel. I mean, what the hell? All yeah. I go to these people because they give you comment, and it's. I think what you're able to do is take something and pull it out and and regard it out of context 
and show how freaking stupid it is. You know, um, too often we're just so embedded into it that we can't we can't really see how ludicrous our position is. And comedians, I really think, are playing a huge role today to uh, to get us to look at things uh, and laugh at it. I agree. And I think when people ask me what my job is as a comedian, they think about going on stage and making people laugh. But I always say my first job is to notice things. It's to sit back quietly, watch how people interact, watch what happens in society and and let that filter through me. And then something comes out the other end. It's not the performance part first. It's just the being quiet and still and noticing the world around you and going, why is that that way? Or that shouldn't, that shouldn't be that way. And hmm, there's something there. George Carlin used to call it uh, things having comedic potential. So he wouldn't have a joke there right away or something funny, right. but he knew there was something off about it. And he knew right. if he spent time with it alone, quietly later and spent time with it, it would start to, it would start to turn into something. And I, I always think there's a lot of truth to that. Well, sir, we are going to get ready to wrap this up. Uh, it has been spectacular to spend some time with you again. And uh, I want to ask this question. I've only asked a handful of people on this show, but I think it's a great question for you. And that question, sir, is if young David Suzuki could see his life right now, what would he say if he showed up and knocked on your door? What would he say of the life you've, you've, uh, you've built for yourself? Well... God, you know, uh, I certainly wouldn't point to myself as a a role model and say, do what I did. I think, uh, you know, a young person today is coming into such a a different world. Uh, My daughter, one of my daughters is now taking over the David Suzuki Foundation. And she came to me and said, Dad, you know, do you have any advice for me? And I said, look. You've drunk the Kool-Aid. You've been, you you know what I am and and what my values are. You've been with it all your life. But you've taken it into so many new dimensions that I couldn't even imagine. She's married to an Indigenous person, has lived in the Indigenous community where the language is going extinct, has become a fluent language speaker, um, you know, has two Indigenous children, is growing up in a very different world. She... I said, to me, the important thing is that I hope I've imparted uh, some of my values and those values, then you're going to go out and shape in in whatever way you decide is the most important uh, part of my life. So I tell young kids all the time who come to me and say, I want to save the world. You know, what should I do? Uh, Should I uh, uh, go into uh, what is environmental studies? And I say, look, you're a young person. Your job is to find out what is your passion? What is your, you know, are you good at music? Do you like to draw or paint or do you like working on cars? What is your passion? And and go out and and do that, but within the context of your concern about the environment. We're going to need these all these other people, but do it in a way that is in balance with the world around you. But the job of saving the planet, that's mom and dad. Your job now is to find your passion, what it is that turns you on. Mom and dad have got to be the eco-warriors on your behalf. That's their job. And that's the way I, I see it now. Um, 
That is uh, a great answer, sir. Uh, anyway, I want to thank you so much for this talk today. It was awesome. I wish we had more time. I had a million more questions I could have asked at some point. I mean, where do I where do I get glasses like those? Uh, is there a cabin or cottage next door to you that's available? <laughs> to rent uh you know i had a lot of questions but you know we'll get to that at another time perhaps we'll chat again another time anytime trend thank you so much i really enjoyed take care of yourself okay take care bye-bye